Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Faith this morning. We're in a series called Faith Foundations in 1 John. Faith Foundations from the little epistle letter of 1 John. Imagine that you're in the first century in Ephesus, which is where John was one of the leaders. This letter from John, John has been exiled. He's, he's a political prisoner, essentially. And the word is that on that Lord's Day, there's a letter from John, their, their leader. Someone stands up and reads this letter. It's a letter to a congregation. He was exiled for doing what? For proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the true Lord of all. And Rome didn't like that. Rome did not like that. So this letter is read out. And those listening would not have had their own copy of the letter. They would not have had it on a screen. They wouldn't even have a copy at home. It's a letter (laughs) that was read publicly in one setting. They wouldn't know what a personal Bible is or was. (laughs) It would be read, and then probably afterwards, there'd be lots of discussion about what was meant by this letter (laughs) in in the weeks that would follow now, in our day, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Uh, we, all, we, we want to hear something new. We've got our own Bibles. We want to hear something new, right? Something creative, something original. But no. Even with very specific concerns that they were facing, John wants to remind them of some simple, foundational, basic things of the faith that they had believed, and he wanted to make sure they still believed. So in this letter, John John would do what what we were told to do in seminary. Tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said. (laughs) He's going to keep going to the same thing. It's like like when you have a screwdriver and you keep turning it until until it gets deeper and deeper. That's what he's doing with our brains. Now, why do I start here? Because we're now in the the third chapter of 1 John, and you're going to start hearing some things that sound like something he's already said. That's true. Because he wants to go deeper. He wants to, he wants to sink it deeper into our hearts. Let's stand and, and listen to the reading of, of, the, of the day's text, if you're able. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. ESV translation. <clears throat> See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident 
who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. God's word. Let me pray. Lord, I pray you'd use this, these moments in your word to, to build us up, to strengthen us, to, to challenge us, to encourage us, to, uh, to follow you more faithfully. We'll give you thanks for what you'll do in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My title is Beloved Children of God. Beloved Children of God. Children. If, if you were blessed to have a good father or mother, you're, you're a blessed person. You should count yourself as, as very blessed and not take that for granted. I had a great dad. My dad that, that passed away about 12 years ago. But, uh, but even today, he lives in, 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 in my heart and in, in the memories that I have for him. And he, of course, I know he lives right now and he's in the presence of the Lord. He was quite a role model for me in many, many ways. The daily details of life, such as driving and, and parenting and cleaning and all, all the basic things of life. You know, nowadays when, when, when young people learn how to do stuff, they, they, they ask a friend or they read a book or they, a lot of them, they go to the YouTube and they find someone who showed on YouTube how to do it. I learned how to do stuff from watching my parents. That, not, that, that's the way it was for me, my mom and my dad. Children are imitators. Children are imitators. And if you have children, you know that. And it's kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> they can imitate some of the things you do and say. Children of God are called to be imitators. Children of God, we're called to be imitators. He is our heavenly Father who loves us and has shown us that love by sending his Son to save us and sending his Holy Spirit to empower us. Here's my point. As God's children, we're to imitate our Father, imitate the purity of our God who is holy. In fact, Isaiah would remind us that he's not only holy, he's holy, holy, holy. He's holy as a holy God, and we're to imitate him. So in, in, the, gospel, in, in the, the letter to John, in chapter 2, the previous uh, uh, section, he's been warning about the strong tug of the world, the strong pull of this world. Love not the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, is what, is what John has been saying. We're to be very alert to how vulnerable we are in this world. Many of us need to be more alert to that. In this morning's text, as chapter 3 begins, I believe John moves on to remind us, in light of this broken, sinful unbelieving, decaying world, that we have three things. We have a new identity in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. That's our past, because Christ has done some things. We have a settled destiny because of Christ. That's our future. That's our future hope. And therefore, we call to walk in purity and holiness as we follow Christ. That's the present. Our identity, our destiny, and our commitment to purity. Purity is, is the high calling to be holy, sanctified people, becoming more and more conformed to the image of our Savior. Verses, verse, verse, three, verse 1, 2, and 3 are my points, and verse 4 to 10 will exaggerate the third point, as we'll spend very little time with those verses. But I want to talk, start with what John says here in the first part. He wants to remind us of our identity in Christ. And in, using these, in reading these verses, I'm going to use the, the, the translation of, of Eugene Peterson, the message, because Peterson's translation is quite creative and quite accurate. It gives us a sense of what John is trying to say. Let me read verse 1 and part of 2 in um, the message. 
What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously. Because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. But friends, that's exactly who we are. Children of God. The essence of our new identity as followers of Christ is that we are beloved children of God. God is Father. He's a loving Father. And that transcends time. It transcends space. It even transcends cultural context. God is our Heavenly Father. Interesting, the, the word see is quite interesting. The, the, the authorized version says, behold. Other translations say, talk about the marvelous nature of this love. Um, but see in the ESV is kind of a very soft translation. Um, it's a unique word in the original language. It usually implies that this love is strange. It's from another country, literally. It's different. It's like saying, it's out of this world. <laughs> it's surprising. It's amazing. It's astonishing. That's the word that's used. You know, we have lots of songs that try to get at that, at the amazingness of God's love, which is such a surprise that he loves sinners like us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's amazing. This grace is amazing. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The astonishment, Nazarene. And I wonder, how could he love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean? How, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. The marvel, the wonder, the awe, the surprise <laughs> that God would love sinners. Love so amazing, so divine, dem demands my soul, my life, my all. The writers try to get at this word. See, behold, how the, the love of God. This Father, Father God has loved us, and we are beloved people. That's where John begins here in this chapter. He loves those who are in Christ just as much as he loves his son, Christ. That's the gospel. That's the new status that we have in Christ, the new identity that we have by faith in him. Identity is a big word in our generation, isn't it? Identity. Some, some are so disconnected from their family of origin, they don't know who they are. Because our identity begins with our family of origin. It's really where it begins in one sense, our, our natural identity Historically, it's not been true. People have been very connected to their families of origin. So much of our identity is wrapped up in things that, you know, we have absolutely no control over and have had no control over. God created us. Think of it. He created us in a certain time of history, in a certain geographic place in history, in the world, with a certain set of parents and siblings. And that family has a certain history and a certain genetic makeup. All that's part of what makes us who we are, part of our identity. Psalm 139, we heard earlier talked about. We're crafted in our mother's womb. But even back there in our mother's womb, we were known by God who created us all and who decided to put us there in our mother's womb. Think of it. We are unique, wonderfully made, David said. We created. And God created us with imagination, and we can use that imagination to, to try to, 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 to tweak our identity. 
<laughs> to, to, to complete it in one sense, to modify our life and, and, and to round out our identity of who we are so that, that we could be a, even more specifically who we are. But we can't create that totally from scratch. We can't create our identity totally from scratch. You know, at our staff meeting just the other day, um, I don't remember who it was, but we were doing an icebreaker, and one of the, one of, they had to answer a question. One of the questions was, what would you prefer to do? To live 100 years ago and meet your ancestors, or live 100 years from now and meet your descendants? Ponder that question. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I don't, remember who, I don't remember who answered it. I don't remember what the answer was, but I was thinking about that question in terms of identity. There's so much of our identity is wrapped up in, in our history, and we are creating the identity for somebody else down the road. Imagination is good. Imagination, uh, it, it makes for great movies. It makes for great plays and for books, uh, fictional books, and we can modify our identity to some small extent by visualizing what we want to become within the limits of what God has already established for us, and then moving towards that. However, at the end of the day, most of our personal energy needs to go to not trying to visualize our identity, but to understand who we are and fulfill our present responsibilities. We're all placed here during this generation to discover our unique role to find meaning and significance and to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. And for the child of God, that purpose begins with the wonderful fact that no matter what anybody says about us, we are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's where our identity begins. We're God's children. Of all the people on earth, and there are many there's billions of people on earth. There are five who are unique to myself and to Terry. You know, you know who they are. Some of you don't know them. I'll give you a few pictures. That's, that's my five. That's our five. <laughs> Joshua, Timothy, Daniel, Grace, and James. The next slide. That's, that's me real young. That's my favorite picture of them. That's my favorite picture of them. They're a little older. And then lastly, from last year, there they are, adults. Five people who have a unique relationship with me and with Terry because I am their father. And we're, we're family. And, and you see, they have instant access to us, to me and Terry. They share our name. They share our blood. No matter where life takes them, they know they have a mom and dad who love them. And there's lots of security in that. We'll always seek their best. No matter what happens, we are. We'll always be family. Family. God gives parents an unusual supernatural love for their offspring. And, and my kids share my identity. <laughs> Sometimes they wish they didn't. But my kids share my identity. They're part of my family. They did nothing to make it happen. Terry and I did a little bit. <laughs> but mostly it was God, you see? The God of the universe who crafted their identities. They were born in the 80s and 90s, raised in Baltimore, part of this congregation. They did not choose any of those realities. They were chosen by somebody else for them. As parents, we had some choice, but ultimately, God is the sovereign one. Much of our identity comes from above and comes from the family of origin that God has given us. Family, that's a word. 
It's an interesting word in our culture today, isn't it? In our day, the definition of that word is even modified. Is it those that you live in your house? Is it those with whom you have a shared set of values only? A shared set of experiences? Is that what family is all about? Is it those with whom you share a blood connection only? Family, what's that word mean in our world today? It's family, the word is being adjusted and altered. We know all those definitions can be satisfied by what the New Testament church calls God's family. We are God's house, God's temple, Ephesians chapter 2. We're a holy temple in the Lord being built up together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. We're God's house. We have the same values. We're committed to the kingdom of God, a countercultural ethical system. You can look at Matthew chapter 3, the Beatitudes. We share values as part of this house, as part of this family. And most importantly, we share blood. We share blood. Colossians says, to reconcile himself to all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. God has made us family. That's, our, that's the core of our identity. And the exciting thing is that, that, that we're not born into God's family. We get to choose faith in Jesus Christ and become part of God's family. And then once we're into the family, we get to, to just be in the family. Are, we, are, are, you, are you resting as part, part of your identity is part of being in God's family? Is that, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that who you are? Are you resting in your identity as part of God's family? The second thing I see is verse 2. John reminds us that because of our identity, our, our trusting in Christ, we have a destiny. We have a destiny. Again, let me use the message again for this verse. Who knows how we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we will see him. And seeing him become like him. See, you can change a little bit about your identity by trusting in Christ. Yes, you can. But that it dramatically changes your destiny. <laughs> And when you, you change your destiny by trusting in Christ. And verse 2 is about hope. It's about hope. The, the New Testament hope is, is not wistful thinking. No, in the New Testament, hope is things that are certainties because of Christ, but which we have not yet experienced. Let me say that again. In the New Testament, hope are certainties because of Christ that we haven't yet experienced. That's New Testament hope. But when this hope is realized, we will no longer have to do battle with sin. If you hate sin, that's good news. True repentant hearts produce a heart that hates sin, if you truly repent it. We live now in that tension. But when we are with the Lord, that battle will be over. Scripture doesn't focus much on what, on, on, on what it's like. It focuses much on what heaven is like. It, it focuses more on the reality that heaven is a place where, where simply Jesus is. <laughs> when, when Scripture talks about heaven, apart from the last couple chapters of, of Revelation, it's really focusing on Jesus. It's a place for those who love Jesus. It's a place for those who worship Jesus. He heaven is a place for those who have bowed in repentance before Jesus. The reality is that those who hate Jesus or even are apathetic towards Jesus would be bored there, would be bored there. John st states it like this. He says that he, Jesus, will appear, and secondly, we shall be like him. We shall be like him when he, when he comes, when he, when he appears, and we shall see him as he is. 
That's the hope of the believer, to be with their Lord. We heard in the scripture reading John chapter 14, the upper room, Jesus' words um, to his disciples who were confused and afraid and frustrated that he was, seemed like he was indicating he was going to leave. He was going to leave for a while. John tells us there that, that when Jesus talked about going to heaven in the upper room that night, he talked in terms of going to the house of a heavenly father. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you, okay? He talked about houses with mansions with rooms. The, the word rooms is dwelling places or abiding places, abodes. Dwelling places for the many children of God. So when, God, when, when, when Jesus spoke about heaven, he talked about a big house. <laughs> because we're family. In that same chapter, he talked about how a person becomes part of God's family. In verse 6, how do we get to the Father's house? Well, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the, he's the entryway into the Father's house. And there's a warning there that we're not automatically part of God's family. There's a warning there, isn't it? Not all are going there. Only the children of God have this hope, have this confidence. Are you a child of God? Have you trusted in Christ? Do you, uh, do you understand that he's the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through him, this Father who loves us. If you don't have that confidence that your destiny is settled, you need to talk to, to someone today. Because salvation, the Christian life, becoming a Christian is, is not about doing, it's about believing in Jesus Christ. I urge you, if you to, to go to the prayer room and talk to someone and if you have a question about, 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 about how, how we can have a confidence in our destiny. Do you have that confidence in your destiny? Are you excited about your destiny? That's your future if you follow Christ, if you're trusting in him. Well, the third thing that John wants to remind us in the passage is verse 3 and then 4 through 10. Because of our identity, because of our destiny, John reminds us of a commitment to purity that we need to have in following Christ. Again, let me read verse 3 from the message. What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him, and in seeing him, become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming, stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. That's the message. ESV, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we rest in the past, our identity, I'm a child of God. We trust in the future. We're going to live eternally with the Father. And those truths have an impact on our present. We commit to purity, to walking with him in holiness. John tells us those who have this hope are committed to live a life of, 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 of righteousness, of cleanliness, of holiness, of purity. He uses the word purity here in this passage. That, that, that is seeking a life to live as a reflection of our holy God, imitating our Father, who is now our Lord, who dwells within us. Um, the other day, just this, this week, um, my, my young, the youngest of my sons that you saw up there, James, um, got back from his honeymoon with Kate. He and Kate got married uh, 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 this spring, and they went on a honeymoon. They went to Australia for two weeks. They just got back the other day. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting that I, I was thinking about in terms of the, of, of the trip, taking a trip to a far-off place. And that in order to go to Australia, there was much preparation that was needed. Much preparation. Um, 
They had to make sure they had the flights. They had to make sure they had hotels. They had to make sure they had an itinerary. They had to make sure they had passports and shots. And, and um, maybe they made it to the Outback Steakhouse. I don't know. I don't know what. But Australia. But you know, the most important preparation they made was they got married. It was a honeymoon trip. That was good. But here's the point. In light of the trip, their behavior was altered. They did things in light of where they were going. And John is saying that. Saints, children of God, you're going to heaven. In light of where you're going, <laughs> it, should modify, it should alter greatly your behavior as you prepare to go there. Heaven's a place where there's perfect love, there's holiness, there's worship of the Father through Jesus. Practice that. <laughs> while you're here. That's what he's saying. Everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he's pure. Now listen, verses four, four, verses four to the end of, of our text, he just kind of modifies, he amplifies that. Again, he's going deeper on, some, on this one point about, about holiness and purity. Verses four to six, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. It seems like maybe in, in, in that day the people were trying to make a separation between sinning and breaking the law. He's saying, he's saying they go together. You can't say, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a lawbreaker. He says, no, 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 no. He says, they, 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 they're the same thing. You know what? That, that he appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John is not holding back. He's giving some very black and white dogmatic statements here. And he, is, is he saying that if we sin... We don't have a relationship with God at all. Is that, it seems to be what he's saying. But is John saying that, that if, you, if, you, if you break God's law in any way, that you no longer have a relationship with God? Well, if it means that, that he's completely contradicting other things he said in the book. We looked a few weeks ago at, at chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar, and his truth isn't in us. So that's not what he is saying. There's lots of discussion in church history about what this means, this, this surface contradiction, and various translations try to help us out. There's a present tense usage of the verb, and it's not talking about specific sinful actions, but it's talking about a continual pattern. A person whose basic lifestyle is an ongoing pattern of regularly practicing sin is what's in mind. And the warning is about those who wrongly feel that God doesn't really care about our lives after we trust Christ. Clearly, John, again, has in mind those that have forsaken the true gospel for a false gospel in his day. And it's many still today, do today. They have a twisted view of sin, a twisted view of holiness, a twisted view of what purity looks like. And so in verses 7 through 10, it's about practicing lawlessness, practicing sin as a pattern of life, an ongoing pattern. John shows us the dangers of this. This ongoing practice of lawlessness by one who professes faith. And there's, in those verses, these, these verses 7 through 10, there are four things that I see, and they all start with a D if you like alliteration. The first is, verse 7, uh, practicing lawlessness is deceptive. Little children, do not let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He's saying, if you aren't, he says, you aren't righteous just because you say you are. Talk is cheap. Don't be deceived. You think that because you say you're righteous, you're righteous. Don't be deceived. There's, there's deception. He's saying, secondly, that, that uh, it's demonic. Look at verse 8. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if you think that you can practice sin as a pattern of your life, you're not God. God is not your father. The devil is your father. You're doing the, work, the, the deeds of your father, the devil. That's what John says. He tries to argue here. You know, people either give the devil too much credit or they ignore him. The devil is real. He's real. He's a real being who hates Jesus and hates followers of Jesus. John says that to live a life of practicing sin is to do the devil's will, not the will of our Father. It's demonstrative, verse 9. It demonstrates something. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, he says, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. The point is, if your life is not reflecting the holiness that he's talking about, it demonstrates that maybe the seed of God is not in you. The seed of God, what's that? The Holy Spirit, God's seed, that dwells in those who trust in Jesus Christ. And John asserts that sin is no longer what characterizes a person if God's seed dwells within them. The Spirit of God makes a difference in our lives. A transformed life demonstrates that a person is a true child of God. Later, he's going to come back to this in verse Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He'll make the very radical statement that only the ones who have the only ones who have the capacity to truly love are those who are born of God. Same idea. Those who are born of God. Loving reveal, demonstrates this love for God. Practically lost, it's, it's deceptive, it's demonic, it's demonstrative. And lastly, verse 10, it's damning. It, it, it shows that you are damned. It shows that you are not. In, in going to the Father's house. By this, it is evident you're the children, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The children of the devil will not go to be with the Lord unless they repent. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is, it, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So come back to loving the brother more in, in the, as the letter goes on. The demonstration that a person is not born of God means that they should not have the, the hope that Christ has died for their sin. Now, as we wind down, I want to say a little bit about just the, the in, terms, in terms of the, this culture in which we live, because John is calling us, calling us in this text to, to live a life of holiness and purity, and in this culture, that's very hard, isn't it? That's very hard. And time doesn't give us, we don't have enough time to delve into that in detail, but we are surrounded by voices and by images every single day that challenge our commitment to walking in holiness and purity before the Lord as the apostles and as Jesus have instructed us. Now let me just give a, a caution here in, in, in terms of the sensuality of our culture. Not all sensuality is bad. <laughs> we can talk about that. It's not all, there's a place. God has given a place, where a righteous place where sensual things are to be uh, 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 celebrated. Matthew 5 says, Jesus said 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're to seek to be a pure people, a pure people. In our day, we unfortunately see sanctioned all kinds of immoral relationships. Television, movies, songs, advertisements. They shout sensual evil messages to our hearts daily, don't they? And these media are not evil in themselves, as I said. 
but they're used to promote evil. Pornography is rampant, isn't it, in our day? Premarital sexual relationships, rampant. Extramarital relationships, rampant. Not, not to mention uh, relationships with those of the same sex. Boy, that's a big issue in our world, isn't it? We live in a society that's much like the first century. We often think this all this stuff this is so brand new. No, it's, it's much like the world that Paul lived in, that John lived in, that Jesus lived in. And the word of God is still the same. Sexual brokenness was bad back then, and it's still bad today. It's a problem back then. It's still a problem today. And yet, God's people are people who have come out of that brokenness and are coming out of that brokenness as God is healing them and as God is, 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 is demonstrating by his spirit the power to, to be his people, to be people who are walking in holiness. Again, if you look at the New Testament carefully, sexual brokenness was a big problem both inside and outside the church. That's still true today, isn't it? Still true today. But like the first century saints, we have God's word and God's spirit. Amen? And we have the challenge and the power to follow Jesus in holiness and in purity. See, the good news is this. Is Jesus forgives all sin. <laughs> Even when we sin sexually? Absolutely. Does God care about things like this? Absolutely. Living in this culture, we need to remind one another regularly that God's word has clearly said important things about this. So the, the, the simple question is, are you committed to holiness? Are you committed to purity? Or do you say, oh, well, I, I'm a Christian. I've believed in Jesus. Now I just do what I want to do. No, 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 no. The, 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 John is, is challenging us here to walk in holiness, to pursue him. Being a child makes a difference. The old school saints used to declare it like this. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I'm going to be. But thank God, I'm not what I used to be. And, and it's, God is concerned about the direction of our life that we're progressing in our love for him, and that's making a difference in who we are. So how, how, how do we rest in his identity? How, how do we rejoice in our destiny, and how do we commit ourselves to purity? You know, there, there's a word that keeps, that's popped up in this section of John that I haven't really focused on, and as we close, I'm going to just show you 1 John 2.24. Listen to this. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. Did you hear that word three times? Abide, abide, abide. And then in our passage, verse 3, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Our commitment to this purity does not flow from focusing on, I gotta be pure, I gotta be holy. That's not where it begins. That's not where you have the success and victory that God wants us to have. It flows from abiding in him, focusing on him, not on your sin, not on yourself. By realizing what he's done for me, that he has changed me, that I am a beloved child of God. I have a new identity in him, that he knows my name. I have a certain home that my Heavenly Father has prepared for me. You see, the imitation of the Father's love flows simply from abiding with Jesus.
Jesus. <laughs> Hanging out with him, praying to him, meditating on his word, being in fellowship with his people, listening to the Holy Spirit, walking in the power of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Let me simply close by reading um, a, a, a section of the uh, Upper Room Discourse, the, the teaching of, of, John, of Jesus, that John from John chapter 15, where he kind of r- reminds us that the key is to abide in Jesus. This is what Jesus says here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does, not, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Brothers and sisters, abide in Jesus. Know your identity. Know where you're headed, your destiny, and live to the calling that he's given us to be pure people. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you for this letter to John. It's so jam-packed with, with things that we need to hear, these basic things that, that we need to be reminded of. Lord, we, we often ignore this call that you've given us to, to, to live a life of, of purity and holiness in walking before you each day carefully. Lord, I pray for that, that, that these things would, would, would become precious to us as precious as you are, who died for us, that we might have the eternal life that, we, that we're confident that we have. Lord, I pray, that, I pray for anyone here who doesn't have that confidence, Lord, that they would not, be, that they would not rest until they know that they, they have the blessed assurance that you belong to them and they belong to you. Use these words in, our, in, our, in this week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. I think our closing song is Heal Us, Emmanuel. Let's do the first verse in Heal us, Emmanuel. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. Bless you.